the last stanza of that psalm is fitting in light of the coming judgment of the Lord where He will dash His enemies like a potter's urn. He'll break them with a rod. would be our duty. Wouldn't it be then as a church to speak to kings and to judges and to all the earth to anxiously serve their God and to kiss the Son and worship Him lest they perish in the way and announce to them that blessed are all those who trust in the Lord, supremely blessed are they. It was uh, one year ago that I, along with Pastor Sautel, preached a short series of sermons that we called Becoming a Commission-Driven Reformed Church. And we thought it would be fitting, given now the turn of the calendar, to take uh, two weeks to allow the Word of God to reset that goal uh, for our church family for the new year and for uh, the years following. You will not be surprised to uh, hear us say again as your pastors that we are convinced that this slogan, becoming a commission-driven Reformed Church, or now going forward as a commission-driven Reformed Church, is a way to describe the necessary direction or goal of our church. It is not a take-it-or-leave-it direction. Going forward as a commission-driven Reformed Church is a take-it-or-die-as-a-church direction, as I will remind us a little bit later in the sermon. Uh, By God's grace, we either go forward as this commission-driven Reformed Church, or we will slowly fade into obscurity. Or we will compromise our faith and lose even the right to call ourselves a church. So that's what I'm doing this morning. I'm reminding us from God's Word of six ideas that we must believe and live in order to show our gratitude to Christ for His love, for His, for His magnificent grace, for His salvation by us as a church family going forward as a commission-driven Reformed Church. Next week, Pastor John will be even uh, more specific as he addresses us. He'll describe the actual ways in which we as a church family are moving forward to accomplish uh, these goals now that we are one year later, one year removed from laying the foundations uh, for it. The elders next week, as we mentioned after the morning service, will be meeting with all of us briefly to organize our efforts as a church family. And I want to encourage you to be there. Don't make an excuse not to be there. I'm not presenting this really uh, as an option for us, but I'm presenting this really as a challenge. And I want to encourage you to respond to the initiative and leadership of the officers that Christ has appointed for all of our well-being in this church. Please, response to what you hear from the Word of God this morning and what you hear from the pulpit next week, meet with your elders to encourage them and to join us as we go forward. So six ideas that we must believe and live to go forward as a commission-driven Reformed Church family. Acts chapter 11. Acts chapter 11, first of all, this morning, if you're using the Bibles and the benches, page 1,711. We, of course, will have the privilege to 
be encouraged by this biblical history later as we come to this section through our series in the book of Acts. But this morning, I'd like to read for you Acts chapter 11, beginning at verse 19 through verse 26. This is God's Word. Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. And news of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he arrived and saw the evidence of the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people, and the disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. And please turn over with me to the book of Revelation, chapter 2. Very quickly here. Revelation chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. I'm going to read six verses. This also is God's holy inspired word. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your deeds. I know your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor, you hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So far the reading of God's holy word. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, six ideas that we must believe and we must live to go forward as a commission-driven, reformed church. First, we need to learn from the church in Antioch that the Lord calls churches with what might seem to be relatively limited resources to do remarkable things for the expansion of His kingdom. We need to learn, at least from the church in Antioch, that the Lord will use churches that might seem relatively to have little resources compared to other groups of believers and other more established congregations and churches with more people and churches with more money to do remarkable things for the expansion of His kingdom. I want you to think again about this church in Antioch, which in many ways is a model providentially for our church as we go forward in seeking to do the will of the Lord, expanding His kingdom, being privileged to be used by Him in that endeavor. I want you to think about that church in Antioch. It was a church that sprung up, you see. There was ministry by the apostles in the early church to the Jews, and then 
the apostles sought fitting to go and preach the gospel also to the Greeks, the Gentiles who were living in that city. And by the grace and power of the Holy Spirit, we saw some early growth in the church of Antioch and it was very much unexpected given that the Greeks and the Gentiles of that community were certainly pagans and idolaters and certainly had no outward earthly reason to accept the truths of the gospel. But by the power of the Spirit, they did receive the truths. They became united with the Jews who had accepted the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ in that city. Now, of course, the apostles knew that the church in Antioch was very young and was probably more susceptible to false teaching and to falling away than a lot of congregations might be. So you saw the church in Jerusalem sending them Barnabas and sending them uh, Saul later at the urging of Barnabas to instruct that church for a year. Now, even though Barnabas and Saul and the others had been teaching that church for a, a full year, uh, you certainly wouldn't be able to look at that church plant and say that it had a, a, a massive uh, amount of history to look back on and so much stability that they could rest on. Anybody who's ever been involved in church planting knows that one year is a very short amount of time. And any growth that you might see in just one year of time is always susceptible very easily to fall back into nothing for people to apostatize from the truth as the cares and concerns of the world uh, grow up around them and seek to uh, choke them. So this church in Antioch, though it had the privilege of the apostolic teaching, was only really uh, in effect for a year, a year and a half, when all of a sudden we read in Acts 13 that there are a number of leaders in that church. At Antioch, the church was there, prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manian, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul, and while they were ministering to the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit told them, told this young church, which was not as large as some of the other churches which had been planted, certainly not as stable as a lot of the churches which by this time had been enjoying the apostolic ministry since Christ had ascended, the Holy Spirit said to them, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And then when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. Now, keep in mind what that means. That means that the established ministers of the Word in that church, the ones who were faithful and reliable, the ones who had been sent by the church in Jerusalem, were now turning over the Antioch church to those they had trained up, and were being sent, those ministers themselves, the stable ones, being sent by God elsewhere. In other words, this church in Antioch really, in one sense, could have said, you know what, Lord, I see that you're calling us to send Paul, or Saul and Barnabas out. And I see that you are calling us then to set, about a certain, set aside a certain amount of resources for the work that Saul and Barnabas will do, but we just really can't afford to do that right now. You see, we're not stable enough ourselves as a church family. We have enough trouble keeping these converted Gentiles into the fold. We have enough trouble keeping the Jews who have received Jesus Christ from bringing the Old Testament law to oppress, the ceremonial laws to oppress the Gentiles who are coming in. And it is difficult, you see. We can't respond and send out and do remarkable things and aggressive things and daring things and things that take chances 
and that require going on faith and responding to the Lord's call, we can't afford to do that. We're just Antioch, after all. But we need to learn from the Antioch church that the Lord calls churches with what might be seen as relatively limited resources to do remarkable things for the expansion of His kingdom. Not only does He choose to use some of those churches for that, but He calls every church to do that. And the Ontario URC should never be intimidated by our size, by our lack of popularity, if you would compare us and what we understand and the way we do things to the broader evangelical culture. We should never be intimidated because our churches won't always be the most or our church will not be the most outwardly appealing as others might be because we have seen over and over in the Scripture that the Lord will call seemingly insignificant, seemingly handicapped by their resources, churches to do remarkable things for the expansion of His kingdom. And we should be encouraged and embrace that mentality and go forward and be looking for the Lord to stretch us as a church to see what He might be doing through us. Second idea that we must believe and live to go forward as a commission-driven, reformed church. We need to learn from Christ's warning to Ephesus that if we fail to embrace our call to reach out, to reach out in a biblical way to the lost world, then Christ Himself will leave this local church. We need to be convinced of this. That if we fail to reach out in a biblical way to the lost world, then Christ will leave this local church. Now, I'm not saying that the building won't still be here. And I'm not saying that there still won't be people here practicing a form of religion. And I'm not saying that this church might even grow if we fail to reach out in a biblical way to the lost. We may have a lot of money as a church, as an organization of people that meets in this place. But if we fail to embrace our call to reach out, Christ will leave this place. This is exactly what He said to the church in Ephesus, which is a letter also to every local church and a letter to us. I know your deeds. I know your hard work and your perseverance. He talks about in that letter, we won't go into detail again, we talked about it last year, but he talks about, he really affirms, Christ does, the doctrinal consistency of the church in Ephesus in many ways. And he would affirm that of us too. He affirms, on the other hand, the exercise of church discipline in a lot of ways, the faithful exercise which a lot of churches would set aside and Christ would commend us for being faithful to Him in that regard too. But he says, I yet hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. And if you remember a year ago, you probably don't, but we understood forsaking your first love, meaning forsaking their desire and their visibility as a witness for the truth of Christ in the midst of an ungodly culture. In the midst of a world where Christ is not worshipped. And that is not any different from our culture today. There are people who forsake Christ for false religions or put themselves in the place of God, vain worldly philosophies, or we have a lot of people who profess the name of Christ and yet say things and do things that are not biblical. And it should be the passion of our church 
to see ourselves and to do things that present ourselves to the world as the light in darkness. The church in Ephesus was being seduced by the culture which centered economically and really everything else socially around the worship of false gods. Artemis, remember her. So people would work, really, only if they had a hand in the industry that supported the worship of the false god. And that was the way they would put food on their table, so they were tempted to compromise, right? They'd go to church, they'd speak of the truth while they were there, they would hold each other within the circle to be accountable for the things that they learned, but then they would go home and participate in all of the idolatry of the world, so that when the unbelieving world looked at them, they could tell no difference between the members of the church in Ephesus and themselves. So the light was not shining brightly. Now our temptation is rarely the same as the temptation of the church in Ephesus. In other words, the reasons why our, lampstand, our light would go out, the reason why Christ would remove Himself from us, the reasons why we would be tempted not to really consider our place as a light in a fallen world are different than why the Ephesian Christians would. I mean, in our case, it's really apathy. I just don't care. I've got enough problems of my own, right, as a Christian. I've got enough things going on in my life. I'm going to have to be concerned about being faithful in prayer and in the other ways that will unfold here in a minute for the uh, outreach of the local church to the lost. You know, it's, um, i got other priorities, you know. i got a lot of reasons why the next four ideas that you're going to present will not take priority in my life. And I'm telling you, Christ is very clear. If we do not repent and do the things that the church does at first, He will come to us and remove our lampstand from its place. We will cease to be a light of Christ as a local church. It's not talking about individuals losing their salvation. We know that can't happen. But if we are going to honor Christ and the work that He has graciously done in this congregation through our spiritual forefathers over the past 75 years, then we are going to think, yes, we have to be concerned, even consumed by the desire to make sure that our light is shining in the dark world that we would reach out to our lost neighbors in biblical ways. Third, we need to be convinced, okay, if we're going to go forward as a commission-driven Reformed church, which is not an option, it is a must-do, it is a follow-this-direction-or-die-as-a-church, if we're going to do it, we need to be convinced that distinctively Reformed teaching and distinctively Reformed worship is biblical worship and it is significantly different enough for us to say that it is so that when we preach the Scripture and when we worship according to the Word, that those in whom the Spirit is working will be attracted to us and to our church plants. Not because of us, and not because of the word reformed, or because of the history we were born into, but because those teachings faithfully summarize the Word of God, which is the standard of all truth. We have to be convinced of this. We don't want to be as the Ontario URC having an identity crisis, which so much of the Reformed world has today. 
Where, you know, on the one hand, we say that we have these distinctives and that they're biblical distinctives, but on the other hand, we're ashamed of them. As if somehow following the Scripture and demanding that we conform not only our teaching and preaching, but our thinking as all of us as members of the church and our worship, especially in conformity with the Word of God, as if demanding that is somehow arrogant. And, uh, you know, presuming, for example, that when we say that the summary of the basic teachings of the Bible found in our Reformed confessions is a faithful summary of God's Word, that somehow that means, you know, automatically, that we're saying everybody else is not a Christian. Or nobody else can be saved unless they understand it exactly like we understand. Reformed churches are not saying that. They have never said that. But it is not arrogant to stand for the truth of God's Word. In fact, it is arrogant not to. We should not be ashamed to know our Reformed distinctives when it comes to our doctrine in general and also in our worship and what we do in worship and how we understand it. Because it's right. And so those then in whom the Spirit is working as we are shining the light and seeking to be faithful to the Lord, (coughs) will then be attracted to us, not because of us or our history, but because they are seeking to obey the Word of God. Reformed churches, haven't we, that God not only says, you shall have no other gods before me, but He says, you shall not make for yourself any idols, for I am a jealous God. In other words, God is not only concerned that the right God be worshipped, that He alone be worshipped, but He desires to be worshipped in the way that He has commanded in His Word. And we may not be seduced by all of the entertainment and the man-centered worship which is so prevalent in our culture today. And not only may we not be taken down that path and putting pressure on the leadership of our congregation to compromise and to adopt modes of piety from other faith traditions which are inconsistent with the basic teachings of the Bible. Not only must we not compromise, but we must not shy away from uh, telling people that our worship is significantly different enough that people should be in Reformed churches. Okay? We're just going to have to say that. Not because of us, not because of reform, not because of our history, but because of what the Bible says. Children. Children, are you listening? You, young ones, have been learning your catechism, right? More and increasingly. You have been memorizing the Scripture. This is part of what Christ is calling you to do as members of this church. And Christ will be pleased with our church more as you commit yourselves to learning the Bible and its basic teachings, to understand them, to grow in them. Christ is calling you to do that. Parents, Christ is calling you to be faithful in raising your children up in our distinctives so that when they come of age, they're not confused and just think that this church is like everything else. Would you come to a Reformed church if you didn't believe its distinctives were true? If your answer is yes, you're a strange one because, you know, 
to be honest with you, there's a lot of churches that will make you feel better and will fulfill a lot more of your life needs, at least as you perceive them, than this one. We should not be ashamed of our distinctives. We should not be ashamed to shine the light of our distinctives. Fourth, quickly, we need to be convinced that our evangelism and church planting, that our outreach must be built upon the two pillars of biblical outreach, which are preaching and prayer. We need to be convinced that our evangelism and church planting must be biblical, meaning it must be built on the two biblical pillars of outreach, preaching and prayer. You see, the hard thing about building an outreach strategy, an evangelistic strategy, shining our light as a local church, the hard thing about building that around preaching and prayer is that neither one of those two things is flashy. Okay? Neither one of those two things is entertaining. And to be honest, a lot of times, as you remind me, especially about preaching, sometimes it can be boring. Neither preaching nor prayer is part of a fancy program. Neither preaching or faithful prayer is short or easy. Preaching and prayer can be long. Preaching and prayer can be hard work. And uh, therefore, it is all the more tempting for the church to set aside or to downplay. Nobody would ever dare say we set preaching and faithful prayer aside, but maybe we downplay it and think that the real action is in the fill-in-the-blank programs, whatever else. But a biblical outreach strategy requires that we build it around preaching and prayer. As for preaching, God, of course, when He works salvation in the hearts of His people, He may work outside of His regular appointed means. But when we're looking as a church to build an outreach program, we center it around the means which He has told us He has appointed for the salvation of His people. And He says, I have sent my ambassadors out to preach my gospel for the salvation of those who are lost. How will they call on the one whom they have not believed? And how will they believe? Well, how will they believe in Him whom they have not heard? Well, how will they hear about Him? How will they hear without a preacher, Paul says? And how will the preachers preach unless they are sent? Right? So this means the ordained ambassadors have been trained and examined and called and sent by your consistory. (coughs) Preaching. It's boring, it's long, it's not flashy, but it's the means of grace. We want people here to hear the preaching. (coughs) As for prayer, people come under the preaching of the Word of God as He opens the door in response to the prayers of the people. Colossians 4.2 Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful, and pray for us, says Paul, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly as I should. Devote yourselves to
to prayer so that a, a door will be opened for the preaching to go forward. And what that means is you are praying as a church family for people to come to church and come under the preaching of the Word of God. And we've laid the foundation in 2006 establishing prayer groups for outreach. And we've had greater or lesser success, greater or lesser commitment in us attending to those prayer meetings and in our own homes being faithful to pray for those whom we work with, our neighbors, pray for our friends, our unbelieving family. And in 2007, we're going to go forward in that. Your elders will be outside at tables next Lord's Day after the morning service figuring out with their group the best time, the best place, the most convenient in which to meet. And if they decide on one that you can't meet, there will be six other elders in the parking lot with different times meeting with their group that you can join with to devote yourselves to prayer for the salvation of the lost so that the doors will be open for the preaching of the Word in our church, in Diamond Bar, in the Spanish-language congregation, and in all of our churches, all around the world, not just in our own denomination or federation, but everywhere where the law and the gospel are preached in truth. Becoming more faithful as a church family, privately, in our homes, praying for the lost being more like the early church. They all joined together constantly in prayer. Acts 2.42, they devoted themselves to prayer. That's a biblical program for outreach. Pray that people get in here. Fifth, we need to be convinced that it is our privilege to excel in the grace of giving our money in support of evangelism and church planting. Meaning, as we talked about at the beginning of last year, paying the preachers and providing diaconal support to those who are in need. Look, I would commend you as a congregation. The Council of this Church has reason to be thankful for the grace of God evident in our lives as a church family. The financial commitments which we as a church family made In 2006, we met. And we would encourage us as a council to be making commitments in line with this goal and also as a church family to continue to be generous. 2 Corinthians 8. Brothers, we want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches out of their most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability and entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. So there was no problem as the Christian church in Jerusalem, far away from the Macedonian churches, as the Christian church in Jerusalem was facing Uh, famine and drought and persecution and political unrest and their members were starving. There was no problem because the Macedonian churches who themselves were poor didn't even wait to be asked. But out of the richness of their heart, they saw the need of their brothers and sisters in Christ, the poverty, and they, they gave the money generously to the deacons and what we call today the Benevolence Fund 
to provide for the needs of those who were coming to Christ who were totally messed up or who were suffering, could not meet their basic daily needs. Nor did the churches shy away, not even the churches in Macedonia, from providing the preachers with what they needed to go out and make a living and preach the Gospel and devote themselves to the ministry full-time for the planting of churches, for the sustenance of churches that already existed. 2 Corinthians 11, the same context. Paul is writing to Corinth and he says, when I was with you and I needed something, I didn't ask you for it, but the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied what I needed. Galatians 6, anyone who receives instruction in the Word must share all good things with his instructor. 1 Timothy 5, the elders who direct the affairs of the church are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. The Scripture says, do not muzzle the ox while it is treading out the grain. The worker deserves his wages. It costs money to sustain churches. It costs money to plant churches, primarily because you have to pay the preachers and you have to support those who have diaconal needs. And it is our privilege as the family of God to give generously for that. Not to make the preachers rich, not to make those who have need rich, but to sustain them so that they may, without being inhibited, give their full energy and direction to their calling, if they're pastors, and if they're members of the church, not be weighed down with sadness and anxiety because they don't have their basic needs met. It's our privilege, isn't it, as a church family, to give generously to these causes. How many churches can Ontario URC plant? How many? Well, let's be like Antioch. Let's see over the next ten years how many the Lord will call us to plant. Let's see how far all of us can be stretched financially to support the work of the advancement of the kingdom. To hold our council accountable, not to spend money frivolously, but to spend money on the advancement of the kingdom. Let's see it. Let's see when we're made aware of needs, if we rise to respond, like the Lord has been gracious to us as a church family. And I commend you for that. And the Lord would encourage you this morning for your faithfulness. I, along with those also who have the apostolic ministry appointed here in this church, I thank you for your commitment and encourage you, exhort you to follow the pattern of the Macedonian churches and continue on. I know it's a great sacrifice, but it's a privilege, isn't it? Isn't it? It's a privilege I share with you. Sixth, we need to be convinced to actually become involved personally in the lives of unbelievers, building relationships with them, answering their questions, and bringing them under the preaching of the Word. We won't belabor this point. Let's just say two things about it. First of all, this is imitating Christ. Christ, after all, looks at His enemies, those who despise Him. And what does He do? He humbles Himself for us, and He comes to live and die for us. And if you're going to get involved in the lives of unbelievers, if you're going to be introduced to them through the ways in which we will be led by Pastor Sotel and myself and by the elders in the coming year, if you're going to get involved in that, then it is going to make your life uncomfortable. And they are going to hurt you. And yet it is our privilege to be in service to serve all men and to speak the psalm to them. Kiss the Son, lest you, be perish, in the, lest you perish in the way. 
Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, Philippians 2, but also for the interests of others. Have the attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ, you see. I want you to think about too this local church's involvement not only in our own community and planting churches in our community and reaching out to our neighbors who speak different languages than we do, but also what this church is doing more broadly in the U.S. as we're getting the word out about our distinctives and forming groups that maybe one day the power of technology may be church plants and not just what we're doing in this country but around the world as thousands of people really are listening to us now on the internet. People around this country and around the world asking for our help and instructing them and growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus in the things which we now take for granted in our little corner. What will the Lord do through us? Let's be open and selfless, shall we? To become involved in the lives of others who are lost because at the end of the day we've been given this grand inheritance and we could do nothing better and to commit our lives in every way to the expansion of that kingdom. We don't have a choice whether or not to go forward as a commission-driven reformed church. We either go forward or we die. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank You for the privilege of belonging to You and now being called as lights in darkness. And I thank You for each one here and the grace evident in their lives, not only to desire to worship You in truth and to grow in the Scripture and to follow You and fight their sin, but also then to be responsive as You lead us through Your officers in our programs of outreach. And uh, we thank You, Lord, for Your grace to us. Help us to be faithful, for we pray in Christ's name. Amen.